Chapter 4 of An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense by Thomas Reed, Chapter 4 Of Hearing Section 1 Variety of Sounds, Their Place and Distance Learned by Custom Without Reasoning Sounds have probably no less variety of modifications than either tastes or odors. For first, sounds differ in tone. The ear is capable of perceiving four or five hundred variations of tone in sound and probably as many different degrees of strength. By combining these, we have above twenty thousand simple sounds that differ either in tone or strength, supposing every tone to be perfect. But it is to be observed that to make a perfect tone, a great many undulations of elastic air are required, which must all be of equal duration and extent and follow one another with perfect regularity. And each undulation must be made up of the advance and recoil of innumerable particles of elastic air, whose motions are all uniform in direction, force, and time. Hence we may easily conceive a prodigious variety in the same tone, arising from irregularities of it, occasioned by the constitution, figure, situation, or manner of striking the sonorous body from the constitution of the elastic medium, or its being disturbed by other motions, and from the constitution of the ear itself, upon which the impression is made. A flute, a violin, a hautboy, and a French horn may all sound the same tone and be easily distinguishable. Nay, if twenty human voices sound the same note, and with equal strength, there will still be some difference. The same voice, while it retains its proper distinctions, may yet be varied many ways, by sickness or health, youth or age, leanness or fatness, good or bad humor. The same words spoken by foreigners and natives, nay, by persons of different provinces of the same nation, may be distinguished. Such an immense variety of sensations of smell, taste, and sound surely was not given us in vain. They are signs by which we know and distinguish things without us, and it was fit that the variety of the signs should in some degree correspond with the variety of things signified by them. It seems to be by custom that we learn to distinguish both the place of things and their nature by means of their sound. That such a noise is in the street, such another in the room above me, that this is a knock at my door, that a person walking upstairs is probably learnt by experience. I remember that once lying abed and having been put into a fright, I heard my own heart beat, but I took it to be one knocking at the door, and arose and opened the door oftener than once, before I discovered that the sound was in my own breast. It is probable that previous to all experience we should as little know whether a sound came from the right or left, from above or below, from a great or small distance as we should know whether it was the sound of a drum, or a bell, or a cart. 
Nature is frugal in her operations, and will not be at the expense of a particular instinct, to give us that knowledge which experience will soon produce by means of a general principle of human nature. For a little experience, by the constitution of human nature, ties together not only in our imagination, but in our belief, those things which were in their nature unconnected. When I hear a certain sound, I conclude immediately, without reasoning, that a coach passes by. There are no premises from which this conclusion is inferred by any rules of logic. It is the effect of a principle of our nature common to us with the brutes. Although it is by hearing that we are capable of the perceptions of harmony and melody, and of all charms of music, yet it would seem that these require a higher faculty, which we call a musical ear. This seems to be in very different degrees in those who have the bare faculty of hearing equally perfect, and therefore ought not to be classed with the external sense, but in a higher order. Section 2. Of Natural Language One of the noblest purposes of sound undoubtedly is language, without which mankind would hardly be able to attain any degree of improvement above the brutes. Language is commonly considered as purely an invention of men, who by nature are no less mute than the brutes, but having a superior degree of invention and reason, have been able to contrive artificial signs of their thoughts and purposes, and to establish them by common consent. But the origin of language deserves to be more carefully inquired into, not only as this inquiry may be of importance for the improvement of language, but as it is related to the present subject, and tends to lay open some of the first principles of human nature. I shall therefore offer some thoughts upon this subject. By language, I understand all those signs which mankind use in order to communicate to others their thoughts and intentions, their purposes and desires. And such signs may be conceived to be of two kinds. First, such as have no meaning, but what is affixed to them by compact or agreement among those who use them. These are artificial signs. Secondly, such as, previous to all compact or agreement, have a meaning which every man understands by the principles of his nature. Language, so far as it consists of artificial signs, may be called artificial. So far as it consists of natural signs, I call it natural. Having premised these definitions, I think it is demonstrable that if mankind had not a natural language, they could never have invented an artificial one by their reason and ingenuity. For all artificial language supposes some compact or agreement to affix a certain meaning to certain signs. Therefore, there must be compacts or agreements before the use of artificial signs, but there can be no compact or agreement without signs, nor without language. And therefore, there must be a natural language before any artificial language can be invented, which was to be demonstrated. Had language in general been a human invention, as much as writing or printing, we should find whole nations as mute as the brutes. Indeed, even the brutes have some natural signs by which they express their own thoughts, affections, and desires, and understand those of others. A chick, as soon as hatched, understands the different sounds whereby its dam calls it to food, or gives the alarm of danger. A dog or a horse understands by nature when the human voice caresses and when it threatens him. But brutes, as far as we know, have no notion of contracts or covenants, 
or of moral obligation to perform them. If nature had given them these notions, she would probably have given them natural signs to express them. And where nature has denied these notions, it is as impossible to acquire them by art, as it is for a blind man to acquire the notion of colors. Some brutes are sensible of honor, or disgrace. They have resentment and gratitude. But none of them, as far as we know, can make a promise, or plight their faith, having no such notions from their constitution. And if mankind had not these notions by nature, and natural signs to express them by, with all their wit and ingenuity, they could never have invented language. The elements of this natural language of mankind, or the signs that are naturally expressive of our thoughts, may, I think, be reduced to these three kinds. Modulations of the voice, gestures, and features. By means of these, two savages who have no common artificial language can converse together, can communicate their thoughts in some tolerable manner, can ask and refuse, affirm and deny, threaten and supplicate, can traffic, enter into covenants, and plight their faith. This might be confirmed by historical fact, of undoubted credit, if it were necessary. Mankind, having thus a common language by nature, though a scanty one, adapted only to the necessities of nature, there is no great ingenuity required in improving it by the addition of artificial signs to supply the deficiency of the natural. These artificial signs must multiply with the arts of life and the improvements of knowledge. The articulations of the voice seem to be, of all signs, the most proper for artificial language, and as mankind have universally used them for that purpose, we may reasonably judge that nature intended them for it. But nature probably does not intend that we should lay aside the use of the natural signs. It is enough that we supply their defects by artificial ones. A man that rides always in a chariot by degrees loses the use of his legs, and one who uses artificial signs only loses both the knowledge and use of the natural. Dumb people retain much more of the natural language than others, because necessity obliges them to use it. And for the same reason, savages have much more of it than civilized nations. It is by natural signs chiefly that we give force and energy to language, and the less language has of them, it is the less expressive and persuasive. Thus, writing is less expressive than reading, and reading less expressive than speaking without book. Speaking without the proper and natural modulations, force, and variations of the voice is a frigid and dead language compared with that which is attended with them. It is still more expressive when we add the language of the eyes and features, and is then only in its perfect and natural state, and attended with its proper energy, when to all these we superadd the force of action. Where speech is natural, it will be an exercise not of the voice and lungs only, but of all the muscles of the body, like that of dumb people and savages, whose language, as it has more of nature, is more expressive and is more easily learned. Is it not pity that the refinements of a civilized life, instead of supplying the defects of natural language, should root it out and plant in its stead dull and lifeless articulations of unmeaning sounds, or the scrawling of insignificant characters? The perfection of language is commonly thought to be to express human thoughts and sentiments distinctly by these dull signs. 
but if this is the perfection of artificial language, it is surely the corruption of the natural. Artificial signs signify, but they do not express. They speak to the understanding as algebraical characters may do, but the passions, the affections, and the will hear them not. These continue dormant and inactive, till we speak to them in the language of nature, to which they are all attention and obedience. It were easy to show that the fine arts of the musician, the painter, the actor, and the orator, so far as they are expressive, although the knowledge of them requires in us a delicate taste, a nice judgment, and much study and practice, yet they are nothing else but the language of nature which we brought into the world with us, but have unlearned by disuse, and so find the greatest difficulty in recovering it. Abolish the use of articulate sounds, and writing among mankind for a century, and every man would be a painter, an actor, and an orator. We mean not to affirm that such an expedient is practicable, or, if it were, that the advantage would counterbalance the loss, but that as men are led by nature and necessity to converse together, they will use every mean in their power to make themselves understood. And where they cannot do this by artificial signs, they will do it as far as possible by natural ones. And he that understands perfectly the use of natural signs must be the best judge in all the expressive arts. End of chapter 4. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. Durham, Connecticut.